Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. 2018 may have been the year of the woman, but 2020 marks another momentous occasion. It was 100 years ago this year that the 19th Amendment was ratified, granting women the right to vote. So Connecticut Secretary of the State Denise Merrill commissioned a report called Women Candidates Over the Past 50 Years. It's a project of the Connecticut Women's Centennial Suffrage Commission. It was the focus of a recent panel discussion I moderated at the Legislative Office Building in Hartford. Today where we live, we bring you that discussion thanks to audio from CTN. The panel included Merrill, State Representative Themis Claridis, the House Republican leader in the Connecticut General Assembly, who represents the towns of Orange, Woodbridge, and Derby. Also, Brenda Carter, campaign director of the Reflective Democracy Campaign at the Women's Donor Network. It's an organization that focuses on solutions to barriers preventing women, among others, from serving in elected office. And Patricia Russo, executive director of the Campaign School at Yale, a nonpartisan, issue-neutral political campaign training program for women interested in running for public office or learning campaign management. I started the discussion with Representative Claritis. When I was reading the report, it was interesting to see this one fact that it takes women seven times to be asked before they uh, want to run. And so I wanted to find out, you know, why did you decide to get into politics? And you start at the local level within your particular town. Well, thank you, Lucy, and thank you to Denise for doing this. Um, those statistics are great in so many ways, and they're sad in so many ways. I mean, the fact that it's 2020 and only a third of our legislature uh, are women in a state like Connecticut it shows us how much more work we have to do. But I'm still trying to figure out, Lucy, why I ran. <laughs> I figured that out. <laughs> Most days I'm glad I did too. Um, you know, I guess for me it was just a very non-traditional way of getting there. Uh, my family was in business, they were not in politics, and we grew up in a Greek household you know, which are typically, a lot of our ethnic households are more, more male-centric. My dad got stuck with two daughters, um, although I was always the tomboy of the group, so it was kind of like a girl and a half. Um, my dad's two brothers all also had two daughters each, so it was this, this male kind of patriarchal household they grew up in, and then they ended up in homes with daughters. You know, and I, I find that women always give their mother so much credit for the strong women they've become and, and what they've learned. And my mom is absolutely amazing. But I have to say, when you get that message from your dad, I think that makes that's such a strong message. Because kind of your mom's supposed to support the girl in a way, right? Because it's a girl-girl thing. But what your dad does, I think, molds women, young girls, in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, I credit them for raising us in the way that we understood that we could do whatever we wanted to do. And that means if you want to have some big corporate job, run for office, or, you know, whatever that means to you professionally, that's great. If you want to stay home and take care of your kids and that's what you want to do, that's great. 
that it doesn't have to be one or the other. It could be one, the other, or a combination of both. So I always kind of grew up with that mentality that I could do what I wanted to do. And I was painfully shy growing up. I know that most people do not believe that. <laughs> and I mean until I was in college, basically, at least to the end of high school. And I just decided I wanted to be a lawyer. And in my mind, that was I wanted to do the whole partner track and work a million hours a week and, you know, end up working in a huge firm. And that's just what I had in my mind. And I don't really know why, but I did. And somehow that got thwarted along the way because one of my friends one day said to me, you know, the woman that has your house, the state rep seat in your district is running for something else you should run for. And I said, I don't even know what that district is. And I didn't. I mean, I was your typical person who you know, knew I was one party or the other, but had my own beliefs in that and paid attention on that surface level, but not to the point where I knew what we all think everybody knows every day. And they don't. So I just started researching it, and 21 years later, here I am. <laughs> but, you know, for me, the reason I ultimately did it was because I grew up in that kind of world where, although my parents weren't in politics, they were very into community service and they were very into giving back and whether that was charities or nonprofits or running for office or whatever it is it didn't matter there wasn't one better or worse but it was something you had to feel a passion for and you had to get involved with um, that you could do good with that and that's how I that's how I ended up there uh, Patty Russo I mentioned again you've been a longtime director of the campaign school at Yale when you work with women who want to enter into politics is the common route that they begin at, say, their local planning and zoning board. Um, how many women feel comfortable just throwing their name into the hat for something like uh, the, state, the State House or State Senate? So what we're seeing is something new and exciting, Lucy. Uh, when, I, when we first started the school, which it was in um, 1992, it was our first year of the woman. How many of you remember that first year of the woman? We had so many women nationally running for office, coming to Connecticut. We were so flush back then. Democrats, Republicans, all these amazing women who were running for the Senate and Congress came to raise money in Connecticut. And so we really had critical mass. We had amazing women running at that time. Carol Mosley Braun was running for the United States Senate for, um, from Illinois. Ann Richards was running for governor of Texas. She came in a couple of times. She had such a good time here and raised so much money here. So we, those of us, and I was very, uh, I was on the board of the Permanent Commission on the Status of Women at the time, very active politically here in the state. There were so many women nationally running. And we thought, wow. And many of them, most of them won. So we thought, wow. 1993, it's going to be a whole different climate, right? It's going to be more women. At least half of people running for Congress will be female. Well, it was not. So that's when our founder, Andre Brooks, uh, contacted Rosa DeLauro, who still currently serves in Congress, as well as Nancy Johnson. How many of you remember Nancy Johnson, um, a Republican from the New Britain area, the 5th Congressional District, um, got together and just said, you know, there are challenges that women face that men don't have to think about. And I think that we need to think about a campaign school um, for women that are going to, you know, fill the political pipeline with amazing women candidates. Um, and so it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride these past 25 years. We have a spike and then we plummet. We don't just like go down a little bit, we plummet and then we go up again. 2016, the presidential election. Uh, after 2016, we started getting an inordinate number of calls and emails 
from women like never before. And then after the first global women's march in 2017, did any of you march anywhere? Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's when we were really happily slammed with calls and emails. And the calls went something like this. Hi, I'm Anna. I'm from Akron, Ohio. Um, I'm, I'm mad. I marched. I want to run for office. So this is my idea of a good time on a Sunday to call these women back. Hi, Anna. How are you? I'm mad. When's your next session? I want to come. I was like, well, where are you from, Akron? Where are you registered to vote? Oh, I'm not registered to vote. This is when you're grateful to be on a phone, okay? You're not registered. To, no, I'm not registered, but I'm mad now. Anna, I'm going to save you the $65 application fee. You are not coming to the campaign school at Yale. And I gave her uh, where she is to register to vote the next day, and I gave her a local political homework assignment. So a third of the women who, who you know, marched that year were not registered to vote. The second third were registered to vote, but did not vote in the presidential because the two candidates were so similar they couldn't make up their minds. But they're mad now. They know it now. So two thirds of the women at that time were new to politics um, and really needed a roadmap, right? So early on, traditionally, Lucy, when women would start out politically, Denise will tell you, they would start on the local level and work their way up, especially women who had young children. You know, when you're down in Fairfield County, where I live, and you and you want to run here, you're like, are you kidding with all the hours? And you, you're never, you know, you're never, wait a minute, I have to pick up my kids at three o'clock, or you know, I have a job, <laughs> things like that. Um, it's tough, it's tough. So early on, um, when we started to see the surge 25 years ago, many women started at the local level, found out they loved it. Um, you know, as things changed in their personal life, they started thinking about a higher level office um, run. Now we are seeing women who just want to go to the top, quite frankly. Oh, no, I've never run before. I'm running for Congress. Or, uh, you know, I just, you know, I'll see Rosa, you know, on uh, TV, or I'll see Susan Collins on TV, and I'm like, how hard can it be? I have an Ivy League uh, 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 law degree. I went to Stanford. How hard can it be? Oh, you're about to find out. You are about to find out. So we have definitely seen the shift in women not necessarily thinking that they have to start locally and thinking that, wow, let me see where I am personally in my life and let me see which one's going to make the most sense for me in this moment in my life. So we are seeing more women. I mean, I am happily slammed right now with so many of my grads who are in the audience today who are we're, I'm meeting with who are running. It's so exciting. Um, and so there's definitely been a new shift, a new energy, and the good news is that women continue to surge. Well, let's talk about the barriers that still exist. Uh, I wanted to bring Brenda Carter into the conversation again, campaign director of the, of the Reflective Democracy Campaign. So we heard Secretary of the State, Denise Merrill say a third of the a third of the legislature are women, but if we're more than half the population, there should be more women uh, in this or in, at the Capitol. And so, what are the barriers that you see that keep women from wanting to run? Just a teeny bit of background, which will I think contextualize my response to your question. Um, the Reflective Democracy Campaign is a national project that um, studies and wor works to change the demographics of political power. So we do big data sets and research projects on the race and gender of candidates and office holders nationwide. And we also do organizing work around the country to open up the system to women and people of color um, to seek elected office and positions of leadership. 
My favorite description of the reflective democracy campaign, which comes from one of my colleagues, is that we're like a think tank with our own SWAT team. Um, so we combine research and action um, in one place, or at least that's our aspiration. And our work is based in, in the reflective democracy campaign is based on the belief that the American political system was built to exclude us. Uh, the, as we know, political power from the beginning of the American uh, political system was concentrated in the hands of property white men. Um, and through decades and centuries of organizing and hard work, women and people of color have um, fought their way in to some level of uh, representation and participation. And I say that because I think it sort of goes to your question. Um, the, the barriers to women and people of color, and I would say women of color in particular, in the political system nationwide, but certainly um, this looks different in every state and every kind of locality, the barriers are extremely high because they're actually baked into the system. It's not an accident that uh, white men hold two-thirds of all elected offices na nationally. We are, the system is built to produce exactly those outcomes. So I say that because it's our belief that if we intend to change those numbers, we have to understand that we need to change the system. So uh, there are barriers from everything from when a person first starts to think about running, and Patty and others know a lot about this firsthand, um, of just basic economic barriers. Does the seat or the office that you're running for pay enough for you to live on if you are um, going to hold that seat? Yeah. Probably not. Most state legislatures around the country don't pay enough to live on. So you have to have some other source of income, which is pretty hard if you're a teacher or a nurse or you have some kind of normal job. And uh, everything from the way our voting systems are structured, uh, voter registration, voter suppression, the way districts are composed, are really built to reinforce the status quo. The political system is built to protect the people who are already in it. It's really not built to invite other people in. Um, so getting in is a real uphill battle. And I think the other barrier that I would want to really emphasize, because I think probably most people in this room know this, but for the average voter or sort of um, American political observer, this is pretty invisible. The role of the political institutions and gatekeepers who decide who can get on the ballot and who's going to get the resources to run and win. This is something that most voters never see because we show up to the, the polling place and we have a ballot in front of us and there are names on that that have magically appeared through some process that we're generally unaware of. Um, but there is a, um, a system of uh, decision makers and power brokers that really shapes who gets on, on that ballot, as there should be. Some groups of people and organizations need to make those decisions. I think that the challenge when you think about race and gender comes in um, because the, those decision-making processes are usually governed by, in my experience, governed by outdated notions of who can run and who can win successfully, who's electable one of our favorite words in politics in 2020. Um, and so the system sort of tends to reproduce itself, and we end up getting a lot of the usual suspects on our balance. So I think there's a, a lot of the barriers are, are quite invisible, but incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. In spite of that, I do want to say women win at higher rates than men. So once we overcome those barriers, um, we're extremely successful. And I want to also highlight that within women, 
candidates, it's actually women of color who win at the highest rates. Um, so that is the single most successful demographic group as candidates. This is where we live. You're listening to a panel discussion I moderated last month that focused on a report commissioned by the Connecticut Secretary of the State, Denise Merrill, called Women Candidates Over the Past 50 Years, a project of the Connecticut Women's Centennial Suffrage Commission. I asked Merrill why Connecticut has only had one woman of color who has been elected to be a statewide constitutional officer. And that was former state treasurer Denise Napier. It has been a long struggle, and we're just now starting to see it change. 2018 was a different year, and maybe 2020 will be another one because we saw literally double the number of women who ran and won, but uh, not necessarily women of color. That is still, there are still many barriers uh, to women of color running for office. and. I would, at this moment, just like to give a nod to, I'm looking around the room and I see many uh, women candidates who have either run and lost and come back to run again and win. Uh, but if you would all just stand, because I think we had, um, these are the living representatives of all the things we're talking about, that, that they have overcome these barriers. Nobody's and standing. Nobody's standing. Come on, come on, guys. Men would be standing. That's, That's right. all I'm going to say. There you, all right. That's all I'm going to say. Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> That's right. So I guess I'd say some, sometimes I think that women kind of self-select themselves out of the process. And that's true in terms of running for leadership positions. I think, I don't know if Demis would agree with me, but essentially we, we feel we have to kind of do our time first. We have to know everything. We have to have been in different positions and have the experience before we actually go out there and do these things. Whereas the studies we've shown uh, show that men, you ask them once, they're like, oh yeah, I'm capable of that, no problem. Um, and, and so there's a certain element because uh, what we were talking about before is the, the political system, so to speak. It's kind of ironic because most of us who come into office did start at the local level through local town committees. The public probably doesn't even know that these town committees exist in many cases, but it is honestly pretty easy in many towns to get onto a local town committee because these local town committees uh, have sort of atrophied over time as we get our news and media from more national sources. So there are these people that struggle, you know, to keep these parties going at the local level year after year. They're the ones helping candidates run for office at the local level. And frequently people just do it as a public service, that they want to be part of a political system. They don't necessarily want to run themselves. And so there's this whole structure down there at a very local grassroots level that really is an entry point for people that I think most women don't see it as that, even though they are the ones that have for years and years been stuffing the envelopes and helping other people get elected. It was a long leap, I think, from there to actually running themselves. So that has to be taken into account. And everything we can do to convince women to put themselves out there. I think women have a lot of trouble running for office. It's, we saw it at the campaign school, we see it all the time. You know, raising the money, even the public speaking part. A lot of women, you know, they're not so sure they wanna get into this. And let's face it, right now, 
it's kind of a blood sport. I mean, it is not easy out there. You get criticized, you get taken to task on everything. Uh, honestly, not just at the state level, but at the local level. Sometimes I think the hardest job is being a first selectman or on a city council where everybody's after you about the potholes and the road and the education in your schools. I sometimes think the hardest job I ever had was on a board of education um, <laughs> because everybody sees you every day in the grocery store or whatever. So I, I think there's, um, yes, the system has to change, but women have to know how to get into that system as well in a different way. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We'll continue listening back to this discussion about women candidates in Connecticut over the last half century and what needs to change to increase the number of women running for office. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're bringing you an edited panel discussion that I moderated last month for the Connecticut Secretary of the State. As part of the centennial celebration of women's suffrage, Denise Merrill released a report which analyzes five decades of data about Connecticut women running for office. It looks at the number of women holding statewide and federal office, their success rates, their party affiliations, and where the representation of women in Connecticut stands today. The panelists included Merrill, State Representative Themis Claritus, House Republican leader in the Connecticut General Assembly, who represents the towns of Orange, Woodbridge, and Derby. Also, Brenda Carter, campaign director of the Reflective Democracy Campaign at the Women's Donor Network. It's an organization that focuses on solutions to barriers preventing women, among others, from serving in elected office. And Patricia Russo, executive director of the Campaign School at Yale, a nonpartisan, issue-neutral political campaign training program for women interested in running for public office and learning campaign management. I asked Representative Claritus how women should address their hesitancy to get involved and whether the state Democratic and Republican parties are doing enough to attract new candidates to run. Most of us you know, our caucuses operate as our caucuses, and then the state party operates the way they operate. And that didn't used to be the case as much many years ago, but now it's more that way. And, and I think my experience in this it may be a little different than others. I mean, I did serve on a planning and board of finance, but quite frankly, if I'm being totally honest, I was in law school. I didn't know anything about it. They asked me to, they asked to put my name on a ticket. I never campaigned. I never did anything. <laughs> And you know, I went to I went to some of these meetings, but again, I was in law school, so it certainly wasn't a priority. And then, when I moved into another town, I was they, the planning and zoning board was an appointment, so I was appointed. And again, so I really, I didn't come from that. I've I've run for office now. I you know, and, and I want to move up a level. So it was a little bit of a stark reality when I ran for the house. But it's weird. I think about it now, and I think. So many people are overwhelmed by all of it, whether the fundraising or the blood sport that it's become, because it is. Whether you're a man or a woman, it's a blood sport. I think women internalize things differently and they, and they take things more personally and, and therefore the way they react to things is more personal. So I think it affects the genders in a different way. But you know, when I ran, there was a woman who had run the two times before and lost and thought that it was her Thing to run again for the third time so that was another woman and then my opponent on the other side of the aisle was a woman mm -hmm. so it was all women mm -hmm. and you know that was 21 years ago mm -hmm. so I think my experience wow. was a little different that it wasn't like I had this this burning desire to run for office or thought I would really ever run for office and then moved my way up it just kind of worked out that way but I think I think this is generally how this works 
Somebody says to a woman, you know, you should really run for office. And here's what goes through their heads. Oh, I don't know. I don't know enough. And I don't know the issues. And how would I do it? And then I have my family. And then I have my job. And I couldn't. And then you stay up at night. And you worry about you don't know enough. And you don't know what, what, it, what it entails. And can it fit into everything else in my life? And then you ask a man. And they look at you like, yeah, of course I should. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no thought process whatsoever. And it's, it's something right that's in our dna it's something that's societal it's something that is just what the way things have been now it has gotten better very very slowly and i think clearly women have become more interested and more confident in doing it but there's but by definition of the fact that there's a th only a third of this legislature that are women it's not enough and you know we kind of a lot of us you know we grew up and with you know your mom staying home and your dad working and even though now most both parents work and and that kind of thing it's just it is it's it's a gender uh based and genetic based and societally based issue that we've been breaking down but very slowly and what it takes is you know a female secretary of the state and a female leader in the caucuses and a female this and a female that that's what it takes so whether we like it or not, when we go into schools and talk to third graders, when a woman is sitting there, the girl's gonna take it differently than if it comes from a man. You know, that is the reality. And so the more of us that are here, that, that message goes, gets put forth in a much more efficient way. Uh, Patty, when you speak again to women at the campaign school and they worry that, you know, uh, you know, they, they love their husband, but they're the ones that are still doing the majority of the housework and getting their kids to where they need to be. You know, how do you answer their concerns about juggling that and making it work for them? Well, I think women, just by virtue of who we are as a gender, we're like, you know, we are the queens of multitasking, right? It's just kind of who we are. We're never just doing one thing. We're always doing 20 things. I remember I've always been on the campaign management side, no interest whatsoever to run for office. Um, and I remember going to DC for the weekend um, for training. And I had a, a young daughter at the time and an incredibly supportive spouse. I would pack and anticipate every need like I was going away on a safari for a month. I was like, oh my God, all the Tupperware with the, you know, and we've all done it. I see the bobbleheads because we've all done it, you know, 350, 20 minutes. Oh, by the way, take it out of the Tupperware first. And so, you know, just, um, I say this is just kind of one of my top 10. I do a, um, uh, a module making the decision to run everything that you need to consider personally and professionally before you even think about running. I don't want to see the Bambi in the headlights look when you have already, oh, Patty, I want to talk to you. I'll, you know, talk, I want to talk to you about running for office. I said, okay, let's sit down. Oh, I'm announcing tomorrow. No, you're not. We're not having lunch till Thursday. You are not announcing. Let's just, you know, kind of talk about what the, the challenges are. You have to have your own political love tribe as a candidate. You cannot rely on your party. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, you cannot. Anything they do is the cherry on your Sunday campaign. Anything that they do. If they breathe your way, thank them. But you cannot count on that. So one of my top 10 is have a heart to heart with your family. Sit down, look your spouse in the eye and say, this is what I'm thinking about doing. I'm so excited. This is what it's going to mean to our family. 
Um, and to really have, it's a very difficult conversation to have. I mean, I was grateful. My husband lived on tuna fish melts for a year because I was just never home uh, campaigning. Uh, so, right? That sounds good, right? Um, your, ch your children, you know, when they're young, they're cute. You can take them around. If they bite, leave them home. But your teenagers, they're going to be appalled, right? They're yes. going to be, oh my God, the rolling eyes to the max on steroids. Right? Somebody's always going to be mad. Somebody's going to be inconvenienced by this, you know, job of yours that you're running for. So that's why the communication is just so key. There was one graduate years ago who called me and she wanted to run for state senate, no children, just a husband, uh, wanted to run for state senate in Florida and she said, my husband, the good news is, my husband said, yes, I can run as long as I'm home by six o'clock every night to make dinner. And I'm like, do you want to put him on the phone? Because that's not happening. Or I've had male, uh, male candidates who are dear friends of mine calling me and telling me the good news that they're planning a you know a you know upper level uh, office run and i'll say great knowing their spouses hate politics oh well you know what does your wife think oh gosh i guess i should tell her yeah <laughs> right so those are the kinds of things like it would never occur to us as fabulous females to not have that but to really have that heart to heart and to really hear how they're responding if they're responding wow that's great i'm all in or what what exactly does this mean? Like, tell me, how does it affect me? Not necessarily you. How does it affect me? You know, if you can get over that, you're, you're good to go. Representative Claritas followed up on Patty Russo's comments. Lucy, can I just yeah. make a quick comment? I, I can't <laughs> emphasize how much having your family buy into this is important because let's be honest, no matter how great friends we have at your family mm -hmm. that, that are the ones that live through this day and night, whether that's husband, wife, kids, parents, siblings, um, you know, and I've taken a lot of crap in this job, I'll tell you that personally, and I wouldn't have gotten through it without them. And I was so effective in getting my family on board that I got my sister to run for the house. And now we're the only two sisters, the sister oh, act in the Connecticut oh, house. I love that. That's great. <laughs> sister act. That's good role modeling, Themis. <laughs> Can I ask you to um, maybe tell us a little bit about the crap that you got and what it was like to deal with uh, some of that? I'm just curious. <laughs> well, when I first ran, um, I was a lawyer, but I also did a lot of um, like fitness and swimsuit modeling when I got out of I got out of law school. And so my opponent, who was actually a woman, decided it would be great if she kind of tried to use that to her advantage and make up all these things on my you know, on the internet and say all these things I did that I didn't do. I worked for the WWE. Um, I was a card girl. And uh, while I was practicing law at the same time, and you know, I'll be honest with you, and I think we all agree with this. If I were a man and I had stood there in a swimsuit and I was a lawyer, the answer, the response would be, isn't that awesome? He's really smart and he looks good too. Right? Like that'd be a great thing. But when you're a woman, it somehow takes away from the, the brain cells you have in your head. If you look a certain way, you dress a certain way, you've done things. And I will tell you, I have never regretted any of that, anything that I did. Those were all great experiences. I met great people. It showed me all different walks of life and different things. But the shame of that whole thing was that was a woman I ran against. Mm. Right? That wasn't a man who did that. Mm. And, and, you know, I think that every woman in here understands that we all, we get the same thing. It's, 
Nobody ever will discuss, did you see that tie that guy had on today? I mean, nobody says that, right? You don't, you don't say those things. Women, did you see her shoes? You know, that's too tight. I like your hair that way. I don't like your hair that way. How, I don't give a crap, right? Like, I don't. Do, do people comment about that with men? Did you see that hair color he got? It looks terrible. But you know, at daily, did you cut your hair? Is it lighter? Is it darker? You know, I like it better the other way. Okay, I don't care. Right, but these are just things, right? They're just things that we've gotten used to hearing and dealing with that men never deal with. I mean, half the guys we know, like you could pop out an eye with how tight their shirt is, right, and the buttons, but you don't, nobody says that. But you know, some woman gains a couple of pounds and the things blow, you know, blowing, you know, you're a little, something's a little tight. You see what she had on? She should, she could go to the salad bar a little more. I mean, it's just these ridiculous things and we're just treated differently. You know, so it's all of that. You know, I've, you know, I haven't gotten married and then it's the whole, well, she's not married. She dates a lot. Well, what am I going to do? Sit at home? You know what I mean? I just, there's just things that women deal with that men don't. And because we're in the public eye, it's more public. People know more about what we're doing and what we're not doing than the average person they just wouldn't know. So, I mean, I have much worse stories than that, but those are the <laughs> ones for public consumption. <laughs> well, thank you for keeping it real. A quick note, since this discussion on January 29th, it was reported that Representative Claritus is now engaged. Now, getting back to the panel, I asked Brenda Carter, the campaign director of the Reflective Democracy Campaign at the Women's Donor Network, to respond to gender stereotypes that can affect whether a woman decides to run for office. I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think in any part of life, when women are navigating that space, we're dealing with all kinds of gender stereotypes and um, confronting them in all kinds of ways. Um, I do want to emphasize, though, that um, based on our research, and I think a lot of people's experience conforms with this, for the most part, the obstacle to women achieving elected office is not voter bias. There are, of course, voters who are very sexist. We know that. Um, but again, when women get on the ballot, they win at higher rates than men. In addition to that, we, and my organization has done a bunch of um, pretty comprehensive public opinion research over several years looking at the way that voters think about women and people of color in elected office. And regardless of how voters identify by party, they are really in favor of there being more women and people of color in elected office. They want that to happen. And the, the election results bear that out, again, because women and people of color win at slightly higher rates than white men when they're on the ballot. So that's not to downplay or minimize any of the sexism and the, the sexist stereotypes that women have to navigate. But for the most part, that those, I would argue that those barriers and those stereotypes are more upstream in the process. They're more within the system, within um, the organizations and the groups who are deciding who's gonna get support mm -hmm. to run and win. Mm -hmm. Once people get on the ballot, of course, there's still some of that, and I, again, don't want to minimize it, but that's not really where the problem is. I wanted to um, just go back to Denise Merrill quickly, because it's not just about uh, getting the ratios to be different. We see when more women are, are in these positions of power, when there are more people of color in these offices, you see laws and structural change that impacts communities that have long been overlooked. Yes, that's absolutely right, and I'm really glad you asked me about that, because in the end, what is this all about? 
does it make a difference if women are running and winning? And you're absolutely right, Brenda. The data in our report also shows that when women run, they tend to win uh, in higher numbers than men in general. And you'll see there's some graphs in here about that. Um, but then that does beg the question of, do we bring something different to the table? And I'm not sure that's the only issue about it. But yes, I think women do bring something different to the table. Uh, they do have different experiences, and possibly in some ways because of the stereotypes. Um, and you know, we've been talking about what it's really like to be a woman in office. I do think we govern differently in some ways. I think women tend to be a little more collaborative, look for the look for the common ground, uh, look for you know, and you can see that in Congress. I know there was a big stalemate a couple of years ago, and what happened was you found, we found out that the stalemate was broken by what a group of women who were having pizza with each other in the Senate, and they were bipartisan. They'd come together, kind of like the old days. And I think I, for one, really regret that things have changed so dramatically since I've been in office. I've been in office about 28 years now. And uh, 28 years ago, we were much more collaborative just generally as a society. I mean, in this building, we used to hang out together more. We used to go out to dinner together with people of the opposite party. Um, in fact, one of my best friends was the guy who became the minority leader uh, later. Uh, he came in with me, uh, Larry Caffaro, some mm -hmm. of you Larry. I'm sure remember. And, um, mm -hmm. and we all would go to the same uh, sort of watering holes at night and go and talk to each other and just have a good time and tell stories about our families and all that. Didn't, didn't mean we agreed on things, but um, it was a different time. And it has changed a lot, even here in this building. Mm -hmm. Um, hopefully women can bring some of that back. I, I'm hopeful because I do see it already that the uh, women that have come into office in the last couple of years do tend to be a little more collaborative, I think. They are kind of meeting together and hanging out together and finding common ground. So that is something I do believe that women bring uh, to, and, and just, I, I like to think a little more decorum, frankly. Um, <laughs> when there are women around, they tend to hold people, I think, to a higher standard of behavior. And uh, maybe that's just kind of instinctual on my part. I'm not sure I could be bear it out with any kind of data. Um, oh, well, well, we're held to a higher standard. Well, we just are. Just by virtue of being yeah. elected officials who are women. Exactly. You are right. held to a higher standard. Yes, so that's exactly right. That's why you elevate it. And I think we bring it, I think we bring it to mm -hmm. the table. Mm -hmm. So, um, we don't want to make it sound like it's really difficult to run for office. I know you're hearing some of this. It is hard. But the, the thing is, if we can get more women running, we're going to win more women will win for office. So really what I think this data shows us is we don't have enough women running to begin with. Otherwise, those numbers would be different. And so I just want to say, Consider this your first ask. <laughs> if you have to really be asked that many times, maybe this is number one. That was Denise Merrill, Connecticut's Secretary of the State, at a panel discussion focusing on a report about women candidates in Connecticut. After the break, we hear audience questions. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're bringing you a panel discussion I moderated for the Connecticut Secretary of the State's Office. 
This year marks a centennial when women were granted the right to vote with the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Denise Merrill commissioned a report which analyzes five decades of data about Connecticut women running for office. After hearing from the panel, I took questions from the audience who gathered at the Legislative Office Building in Hartford. So I have a comment question. Um, I think there's an equity piece that we have to talk about, and particularly, I, I would really like to go back to talking about really the absence right, of women of color and their access to run for office. And I appreciated your statement that this is not just talking about someone having lawn signs taking down. <laughs> like, we're talking about uh, systemic systems and machines coming down on women, and particularly women of color, and undermining their journey to uh, something that I even think about very deeply is looking at Stacey Abrams' fight, right? Mm -hmm undermining their ability to get on the ballot. So we're not even talking about just not being elected. The fair fight is a question, not only in Georgia, but it's also a fair fight question here in Connecticut. And I, and I think my comment is, one of the things that I would like to see is us to really think about over this time and as we're journeying through this year, where women of color, black women, other women of color have not only contributed to this journey and this in this fight and opening up doors and and i think i'm going to bring her into this space because she's not on this report but mary seymour even though she did not get elected she is an african-american woman the first to run for state office she has to be part of these conversations she ran in 1920 she was part of that group that put their name on the ballot she ran on a third party ticket and so that's another conversation that we can't overlook the women of color or women in general who are running on third parties, um, part of third parties, because she should be part of this commemoration piece here as such a trailblazer. But we know that she also ran in 1922 for uh, Secretary of State, right? So African-American woman running in 1922 in this state for Secretary of State has to be talked about and acknowledged. So my question is, when we look at this kind of longer history and we look at the barriers, what are some of the things here in Connecticut that we are doing to eliminating this, the barriers to making it a more fair fight for women of color to consider to pursue office? Patty Russo, executive director of the Campaign School at Yale, responded to that question. You know, when we first started the school, uh, 26 years ago now, the majority, uh, the median age for a woman attending our school was mid-40s and white women, you know, all white women. Really fast forward up to we had women of color uh, subcommittees or how can we get women, more women of color. What really, really changed things exponentially for our school was the Obama phenomenon. 2007, we started to see this enormous surge of women of color applying to our school. Uh, they had either taken time off from work or school to work on the campaign, on uh, Obama's presidential campaign. They kind of got the bug. They had never been, you know, it, it was really their first introduction to be politically, civically engaged. And they loved it. And they was like, wow. Why not me? I can do this. And so they, we start seeing women of color in droves applying to the school and getting in. And so ever since then, 
the so then the median age at our school now is late 20s early 30s and the majority of the women who come to our school are women of color now that just doesn't just happen it's something that we take very seriously it's important to us personally that that our school look like america it makes a difference when you've been on the outside looking in and you're invited in to a what is perceived as some kind of you know elite special experience you've got to feel a part of that environment right i have had that experience myself where wow i should feel really lucky that i'm here but i'm i'm still on the out you know on the outside even though i'm in we just don't have that at at the school well, you know we just really work hard to make sure that everybody has a connection and feels a part and a responsibility quite frankly for using their voice and and speaking up um so it's not something that happens overnight but it's got to be done purposefully intentionally and lovingly for it to happen and you will reap the wonderful rewards that we have we've experienced at our school another woman took the mic to ask about candidates of a certain age what about um women of a of a senior status as myself <laughs> how how old would that be what are you talking oh, about i'm not going to say <laughs> but i i'm sitting here thinking about how our population is aging mm -hmm. how uh, issues of aging are need to be addressed and um what it, it hadn't come up so i thought i'd just introduce the topic secretary of the state denise merrill took that question I, I will um, say something, being a woman of a certain age myself. Um, one of the most interesting characters around this building in the last 30 years was Edith Prague. Oh, Edith. Um, she ran for office when she was, I'm sure, in her 70s by the time <laughs> she first ran and stayed on until fairly recently. She was a marvelous advocate for the elderly. Um, and was known for her feisty defense of many things about nursing homes and assisted uh, kinds of situations. So there was no more powerful advocate, and she was definitely not young when she first ran. Now, she had been involved in politics for many, many years. But I think that's a great example of how, I guess, going back to sort of the, the, the idea that candidates should reflect our society, of course there's room for women who represent that population and are there themselves, who better? Mm. Uh, so I would definitely encourage you to run. Okay, we're gonna fit in one more question. Thank you so much. Uh, first of all, as a mother of two daughters, thank you all for being in the positions mm -hmm. that you are. I now have the ability to tell my daughters, no, these women are, not just these women can. And so that, as a mom, I, I genuinely thank all of you. Um, and so um, we're talking about, you know, access and barriers and, you know, another way of introducing women into the uh, political process and uh, inspiring them to lead is uh, creating easier avenues for them to even come up to the Capitol and participate. Um, it's so hard for women to do that. It's hard for everybody to do that because, you know, the legislature runs you know, nine to five, it would be great, you know, if we could find ways to increase access for everybody to do that, because that's another avenue for, for women to understand, like, no, I do belong here. I, my voice does matter here. And maybe someday I, I will run now that I see that there are other women there. Good idea. 
State Representative Hilda Santiago from Meriden was in the audience, and she shared this final comment. So I think when you mention women of color, we have to make sure that not only African Americans are mentioned, but that Latino women are mentioned. Brenda Carter, the campaign director of the Reflective Democracy Campaign at the Women's Donor Network, closed out the panel. If I could just build on uh, on that as well as the earlier observation, I really um, I appreciate both of those, and I think um, I really want to underline the importance of when we are having commemorations and rightfully celebrating the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which was absolutely historic and an enormous achievement, um, that we also recognize how insufficient and partial it was mm -hmm. and how much racism and the politics of race were woven into it and still continue to be. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's not, again, to take anything away from the achievement of winning the 19th Amendment, which was an enormous act of um, enfranchisement, as Secretary Merrill said earlier, but it was largely meaningless for millions of women across America who still had no meaningful right to vote until the 1960s. Right. And we still struggle to win meaningful uh, right, uh, a real meaningful right to vote and to participate in the political process in all kinds of ways. So um, I want to just really underline that as an incredibly important part of our reflections on these centennials because I think it's just we misunderstand the nature of the challenge that we're up against if we don't understand the ways that these things are intertwined. Today's show was edited by producer Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to CTN for the audio from this panel discussion on January 29th. You can check out the Secretary of the State's report on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.